This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Susan Minot, author of the short story collection, Why I Don't Write and Other Stories. We want to get away from ourselves, I think, whether it's into a connection with someone or in the work we do. We'll be back with Susan Minot in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Susan Minot, award-winning novelist, short story writer, poet, and screenwriter. Her first novel, Monkeys, was published in a dozen countries. Her novel, Evening, was a worldwide bestseller and became a major motion picture. Some of her other works include Rapture, 30 Girls, Folly, and most recently, Why I Don't Write and Other Stories. 
Minot received her MFA from Columbia University, and she lives with her daughter in New York City and on an island off the coast of Maine. Why I Don't Write in Other Stories contains 30 years of work that include narrative, traditional stories, stream of consciousness tales, and they take place all over the world in locales as far away as Africa and as intimate as Minot's own New York City. Among the characters featured are a writer cataloging the myriad reasons she can't write, a hapless 15-year-old boy who finds himself in sexual danger, and lovers in various forms of attachment. When we spoke, Susan Minot was at her home on a remote island in Maine. We started with talking about the title, Why I Don't Write, and the story of the same name. Yeah, the, the title came from like the process of, of most stories, you sort of think this thing and then it leads to that thing. And, and I was thinking, you know, it's certainly something I ruminate over when I'm not writing and I ought to be, or I, I want myself to be writing, (laughs) whether it's because I have something due or because I feel like time's a wasting and there's not much time left but there were many times in my life, and, and actually a lot of it was the time I lived here on the island in the aughts. Um, I, I didn't feel the enthusiasm for writing. I just thought, you know, if you say to yourself, who cares? You know, why does anyone care what I have to say? That's going to, that's a pretty good thing to stop you from from. From writing. So it's something I'm aware of, the times I feel compelled to write, the times I feel, you know, like I'm for my job, I have to write and times that I want to write. And, you know, writers are are asked in their careers to to write the the famous usual essay, why I write, because it's it's interesting to to see. And I'm sure you, you talk about that on on your your radio show, um, and I'm always interested to to read those because why this person writes is different from why this person writes. And I've thought, in fact, I just found I didn't even remember writing it until I saw it. My basement flooded here last week and and a bin of one of my papers like toppled over and was like floating in the foot high water. So I I, I drained it quickly enough and anything that was in in ink letters and things like that got all very blurry, but, but most have been drawing it out all over the house, but there was one folder and there was a, why I started writing piece that I had done, like, you know, early inspirations, which I had sort of forgotten about, but (laughs) which is another thing about writing you, even when you, you spend the time writing something down, you can still forget it. Our memories are just uh, wafting and I won't say irresponsible, but certainly illogical. So with the why I don't write story, I also have a lot of notebooks that I jot things down. You know, originally it was just a journal, but then I have another one because I don't want to put all my dreams in the daily journal. And then I have another that's like 
notes to self about movies some I wanted to see or books that songs that I really like and so I jot that down there so I have a number of of journals and one of the things I often do um not even before I write but certainly to clear my mind is just to jot down the things that strike me as a way of of getting them out of my head like I kind of want to remember that thing or or that thing was was um, intriguing in some way, or this really bothered me, and so I write it down. Like it, it can be a reaction to the the, the positive and and the negative. And um, I remember from early on the the Henry James suggestion um, to to writers saying, "Be a writer on whom nothing is lost." And if you take that to heart. Um, you know, his his he was talking about seeing an an image that of a family moving out from a cracked door on a landing as he was going down the stairs, and and from that just image he wrote what Maisie knew about a a, a little girl seeing her parents' divorce and her experience of that. So just that that intriguing image he he didn't let it be lost on him and he made something of it. So I've maybe taken that to the extreme by just writing down everything that, <laughs> that sort of hits me. And, um, and at, at one point I, I did it sort of for three or four pages straight. It was just there in the notebook. And I thought, Oh, one could sort of go on with this because this is really about the things that float through a person's mind I can frame it by saying it's a writer, why she's not writing, but it can be extended to just what goes on in a person's mind, you know, worrying about the bills or hearing a song and suddenly or remembering someone being disturbed that by the headlines and, and all those things. So that's that's how it it came together. It was probably like three times longer than than the story is. So I had to to um, choose what to keep in and and start to see a little bit of you know where it was because I do like beginning, middles, and ends to to have it it drift in in a certain direction. You know, having a sort of lighter observation with a heavier one, maybe something funny with something a little more sad. So that's when you, you conduct the, the orchestra. <laughs> so that story and another one in their listen are more, they're spare. They're, they're not stream of consciousness. They're very well crafted, but they're, they're snippets and they, they feel like you're inside someone's head in a really intimate way. Do they take more editing and crafting and shaping than maybe a more narrative, longer story for you? It shouldn't give everything away, but actually less because crafting a story, it's a lot harder for me to make a narrative consistent, like, you know, line by line, um, compelling. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the making the bricks part of it. 
and then there's the designing of of the house part of it and should there be another room in the back you know there's so many more things to think of um the story listen was kind of inspired because i've written a few plays in the last 10 years and and two of them were just kind of voices one was called summer and it was set here um, on the island and it was kind of the voices that you hear on a summer day and there was a a child was one of the speakers and two um people who live on the island and there was one sort of as they call them summer person there was a teenager there was someone in there and it was just these voices that you hear you know about someone's electricity going out or is someone back from the hospital yet or is there any more bread at the store and just as this sort of blending of voices and listen i wrote for i was asked to contribute to an anthology um after the 2016 election i think this was called we are america like you know trying to gather together disparate voices as a reminder that we're all America so I I wrote that in kind of response to the 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 things that people said after that election. It wasn't as deep, I would say, as as I hope my stories are. So I believe I read that you wrote these stories over 30 years. And I'm wondering, well first if that's correct, but also when you look back, do you see what concerned you? And how do you see that um, over time? And how do you think about that now when you look at it as one collection? When I was writing stories, as I was writing them, I was after my last book, which was called 30 Girls, I planned to write a, a novel, this novel set of this um, single mother set in New York City. And it's already kind of three years, maybe four, I don't want to really say, but overdue. And in the process, I would write a story every now and then just to feel like I'm finishing something because, you know, it's a long, dark tunnel. Um, if you're working on a novel and you kind of want your work to sort of appear, so you feel like you you exist somehow. So I was, I was writing a few stories. Actually, hardly any were written in the aughts. There were um, four of the stories were written in the late, in the 90s. And um, the other one, so I, after I, I wrote Why I Don't Write, I thought, well, this is a, an interesting enough story. Maybe this is a something that could head a collection. So I looked at the stories I had, and I had another... Um, four stories that I'd written in the last, in the, you know, four or five years before. So those were all written in, you know, after 2010, I would say. Um, and then I went back and I saw I had 10 stories that had, that had been published in, you know, the Atlantic Monthly or whatever, in different journals and that were, had never been collected because my last collection of stories was in 1992, I think, maybe 89, 1989 was lost in other stories. So I showed those to my editor, Jordan Pavlin. Um, 
who who I dedicated the book to, and she chose four of them. She thought four were strong. And they're the ones you can notice that are sort of about younger people, <laughs> um, that uh, the ones that with the, the jealous couple or the couple falling in love. There's one very short story called The Torch, which I wrote almost like a, a version of a novel that I wrote right after it called, as if I whipped it off, but Evening. It's just a three-page version of what expanded into a novel about a woman on her deathbed, like remembering a man she fell in love with. So we thought, okay, well, let's put them together. And they actually, as many things when you put them together, I also do collages a lot just to keep my hands busy. And putting um, images that don't normally belong together, you know, like a snapshot of my father playing golf with sort of Whitney Houston watching him on the golf links, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. So when you can, you make a sort of strange connection when you, you put disparate things together. So the stories ended up having more of a logic than I realized. And someone pointed this out that the first story which is set in Kenya, is actually sort of where my last book left off, which was set in East Africa, in Uganda and Kenya. And then the last story, and no one seems to really notice this, but that's fine. It's set in the, um, and it's the most recent story that, that I wrote. It revisits a character, the sort of central character of my first book, Monkeys, it's Sophie Vincent having a sort of experience away from from the family. Not even after Monkeys. It, it takes place during the same time frame of Monkeys. But so I sort of re I won't say revisited a character, but I resurrect a character. <laughs> and now you know, seeing them all as sort of one body of work in this collage, does it? sort of incite other feelings in you other than this sort of impetus to write each of these stories? Like when you put them together, do you see new sort of nerve paths or connections to your brain? Uh, I don't think really. I just see, oh, here's a interesting like version. In fact, the, the, the order of the stories was different at when it was first in galleys and the title story was the first story. And because it's more, you know, sort of like a poem or it's a little more um, less like a conventional narrative, um, my, my agent suggested maybe you want one of the more, you know, a, a story you can enter in a little more easily at the beginning. And, and that made sense. And then having having the, the sort of, more odd story be as it is right in the middle, like it's hinging the the stories on either side. Um, it just made me think about, I guess, the the different modes of the stories. Um, I did notice that the the more recent stories are less, um, or maybe I should say, more reflective in their commentary than my early stories. My early stories, I was sticking with the, the sort of 
aesthetic, I guess, of just describing exactly what's going on in the moment in the story with, with not too much um, sort of elaboration or commentary. Like that was my, um, I think, slightly less secure mode of writing a story. And um, it's just sort of I found myself wanting to say more about what's going on internally with the character than I maybe felt as confident of doing beforehand. So it's still, there's still stories in the same way, but the, the focus is a little more internal, I think. I found a lot of the stories were concerned with this sort of all-consuming devotion to another person, for example, occupied or clean green glass or cafe mort. These people who maybe are so devoted, they're not taking care of themselves in some way. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Um, well, certainly I've, you know, I can look at my work now and I always tell my students don't try to describe your work until like you've done it <laughs> because you can only sort of see what's there and sort of have some perspective on what you're doing after you've written. Because as I was saying before, a lot of, you know, is it intuitive, the, the things that you want to, to sort of talk about and the things that you, um, you know, are observing and, I can look at my work and say there's no question that sort of desire or longing, whether it's sort of sexual or it's certainly a desire for communion, um, which usually takes the form of desire for the lover in the story. Um, it's that's just a thing that keeps popping up for me, it turns out. I think that worship is a good is it nicer word to use than obsession? <laughs> um, it it elevates it, and I I think that's that impulse to worship is yes, you maybe aren't as the phrase goes looking after yourself, but devotion to something sort of other than yourself is somehow um, very appealing. To me, I have to say. So I continue to kind of examine it in its in its different forms and in its as the title of one of my other novels is in its folly. <laughs> we want to get away from ourselves, I think, whether it's into a connection with someone or in the work we do, whether it's in athletics or disappearing in art. It's a way of relieving ourselves of, I don't know who said it, the, the pain of being oneself. Does writing do that for you? Well, I think that I was compelled early on to write in order to address that. I mean, you can avoid pain by becoming a drug addict and open the door for a whole other kind of pain. You can hide from yourself in feeling pain in many different 
ways psychologically, but whatever pain you might feel, you know, we're going to feel pain that here's this, this sort of beautiful, mysterious, horrible world. And we're going to leave it one day. You know, there's, there's something painful (laughs) about that awareness. And so that's, that's riddled through everything. And I'm not sure if writing relieves the pain, it's maybe a response to it in, in the same way that writing is a response to joy and connection and the sort of miracle of other people and fascination of how people behave. All, all those things are, are in there, too. So what you were just describing is very, I mean, I'm sure it comes out in a subconscious or even unconscious way sometimes when you start a story and you're in the flow, but it's based on something that you're very conscious of. And I read somewhere that you're also very moved when you write by images. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and how that may or may not interplay with the more cerebral approach. I feel like when I write, I am when it's going well, like you say, in the flow, I'm just following an instinctive sort of searching toward whether it's describing something complex, describing something mysterious, something disturbing. You know, there are all different things that can lure you to want to put words around it. So the, the words come after the, the instinctive feeling. Um, I don't usually, I mean, I was talking about the story why I don't write a, 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 in a concept way. The concept came after I saw all these little bits and pieces that I had. I thought, oh, maybe I can shape that into a story by using these elements. And, and, uh, Another story will be inspired by image or a situation between two people, a a moment that's happening. And in describing that moment, then I will kind of continue to, to sort of circle around it and say, here are all the elements to that moment and why that moment is, is interesting. It's funny because people will say to you as a writer, you know, I've got this really good story. It's about da, da, da. And and even if it's a really good story that has a twist at the end or it's remarkable. And if if it doesn't sort of strike you or for me, it's not going to be something you'll be able to to go deep into. I mean, it's interesting to to do an assignment because that's maybe taking you, making your mind go in a place where it isn't naturally going, which that's sort of a relief sometimes because mine just seems to be just roaming wide. I mean, in my own little brain, distractedly so much of the time. What you choose to write about just... Like I say, it bubbles up and it, you need to be sitting at a table or wherever you are with a you know pen in your hand to find out what that is. Stories aren't full formed in your head. You 
find out what they are sentence by sentence. And you have it. I think it was John Updike said that a story is like writing a story is like seeing something out of the corner of your eye, right? You're seeing it and and as you describe it, it it kind of comes into into relief. So do you remember what you were seeing in the corner of your eye when you wrote Cafe Mort? And then we can talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I can describe what happened after I've written the story. I just can't um, plan it out. Um, yeah, that was a story. That's one of the old stories. And um, I mean, the ones from from the 90s. And it was I had when I was living in New York, when I was first there going to Columbia to graduate school in the, the, the writing program. I was waitressing, feeling sort of alienated with people in the restaurant, and it was over kind of on Third Ave, and it was just sort of a an Italian-y place with some regulars, and and I thought, well, that's that's material that I know well, um, you know, because I worked there for maybe I don't know about a year, a little under a year, but I also thought. Uh, people write a lot about stories that take place in a restaurant or I don't know what's compelling about that. And, and at some point I just, I thought to myself, you know, it was deadly in there for me. And then I thought, huh, (laughs) I sort of took that, that description. And I thought, well, it really was like everyone, what if, what if everyone was dead in there? And so it's in the story, all the, the customers um, in the restaurant are dead. Um, so because I'm very interested in how people die, it's there are many, many ways people die. And it always, you know, as sort of the last sentence of a person's life, it's it's quite interesting. Or the, as we think of it, maybe an interruption in a life, like if you don't live till old age, Um, so I could sort of explore different ways people died. I could have them talk about what they thought life was like, which again, is very interesting to me to know what people say is this is the point or that's the point, um, summing up what they've learned. I'm certainly always trying to gather those, those various versions of how people like think of their life and, and what they care about the most. Um, not that I'm unsure about it, but I'm unsure about it. (laughs) And then I thought, well, who would be waiting on them? Well, maybe people be waiting on them who are grieving for a dead person because in grief, that could be one description of grief. You're, you, you can't stop thinking of the person gone and your life becomes a sort of waiting on them, a serving them and their memory, because if you stop thinking of them, then they'll, they'll really be gone. And as long as you think of them, they're, they're still here. So there's a kind of enslavement in, in that aspect of grief, of grief. So that was the setup. (laughs) And then I thought, well, I'll let my, you know, I, I want something to happen. So I, I let the narrator, I didn't, you know, I decided this kind of as the story's being written. 
that she's going to to realize that she's she's at the end of of serving the the lover that she's mourning and and how that will happen in the story. So I would say that probably my favorite story was Boston Common. So in Boston Common, you have a character named Ned who is going to a boarding school in New England and it's um, a school break and he goes to visit his aunt because he doesn't have long enough to go see his parents. And he is a hockey player and we learn through his past that his parents have gotten divorced and his dad has left his mother for someone he fell in love with at a conference and he's a little unmoored by this. He has an older brother. And when he's in Boston, he decides to take a risk before he goes to visit his aunt, which is to go score some pot at Boston Common. He's heard of people who've done that before. And he's kind of the one at school who was who always sort of um, taking someone else's joint or, or sharing someone else's riches. And so he wants to take charge in this way. And when he's there, he meets someone who lures him back to her apartment and he ends up being raped by this person. And it's kind of like the long, long-term consequences of that, even if he couldn't face exactly what it all meant in the beginning. And you have this sort of weaving of what's happening in his home life and his relationship with his brother and his dad and his schoolmates and this horrendous thing that happened to him and how it impacts him. Good description, Mitzi. So tell me more about your thoughts about this and um, inspiration and, and getting to like Ned's real pain and how you sort of wrapped it all up to really show the reader his pain without sort of showing it in the moment. You, you talked about the impact. Well, so this was a... Um uh, incident that I had heard happening to someone, um, just very bare bones, you know, uh, a 15 year old boy who in trying to, you know, buy some pot, uh, ends up, yeah, getting raped. And that was sort of as much of the details that I knew um, I knew the terrain a little bit of, of Boston and I knew, so I wanted to, my, my initial, um, thought of telling the story was to describe how this happens, like how, you know, in a sort of this slow, weirdly, um, thoughtful, tentative way that a young person just doesn't know how to, I won't say defend himself, but feels sort of so embarrassed that he's suddenly in a dangerous situation. He, he's kind of paralyzed by it. And I think that, you know, that sort of paralyzing fear happens in a, a lot of situations, not as sort of dire as this, but that people you know, are, are too scared sometimes to say, Ooh, sorry, I, I didn't mean that. And then just run away. It's like, they would rather not be embarrassed than, <laughs> than, than sort of go through with something that 
in this case, he thinks is kind of grown up thing to do, and he's going to impress his brother by it, and and then he just gets in too deep, and 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 so I was just I just wanted to follow like what was going through his mind as that incident was going on, and then I realized that I needed to, in order to to kind of make his frame of mind um, not just believable, but to, to know more of why he was in a more tentative, sort of insecure place, um, I needed to describe what was going on in his family life. And so I thought, okay, and then I just, you know, made up that his his parents were recently divorced and the mother, it turns out, is kind of drinking too much and the father isn't really around. I mean, again, very much sort of in the background as if, ah, this is just what's going on in his life. But obviously that's having a big impact as it does so heartbreakingly on, you know, people, you know, in their adolescence or younger who are so affected by what goes on in their families, even if they kind of carry on. And so I, you know, without making this rape be the determining factor in, in a, uh, a sort of shoot, shooting forward into the future kind of description of of where he goes in his life, um, I, there needed to be other other factors there as as well. But that that the trauma of this specifically definitely contributes to to where he ends up in the future. And I always like I'm just trying to think of of other writers that that do this. I mean, Alice Monroe certainly does it in her stories because her, her stories are often very novel like in their scope. You know, she'll, she'll tell a little incident and then she'll say, you know, 10 years later and da, 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 and you'll sort of continue on with a character throughout their life. So I like, um, sort of shooting forward to say here, this is what was going on then cut to, you know, this, this future. And one isn't surprised where this poor boy kind of ends up. I did notice that time, I think, is of interest to you because several of your stories either started where someone's older and goes back in time and then shoots forward to them even older or they're retrospective in some way. Yes, I think time is maybe taking over from desire for a, as a um, subject. After you've lived a long time, and I've lived a long time, there are things you learn about what happens over time that you you don't know when you're you're younger. So that turns out is kind of not that that wasn't you know memory and the effect of the past has certainly always been a subject, but 
the longer you live, the, the, the bigger that subject gets, the, the more layers that memory can have and the more you understand or discover how complex it, it really is. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you or speaks to you as a writer? Yes. So I had to think I'm up in, I'm up in Maine and I don't have a lot of my, my books here. So I couldn't go to, I don't know, I was going to look around, but I do have my, my Chekhov short stories. And so I was going to read something because I think he's my, he's, he's, the, the top of the pinnacle of, of short story writers, the, the one who has the most um, to offer in, in his, his story writing, I think, and I just adore him. It's from Lady with the Lapdog. This is a story about a man named Gurov who goes to a watering hole where he lives in, in Moscow. Um, and he, he's kind of a womanizer and he's very dismissive of women, though he, he also acknowledges that he can't live without them. There's something about them that they seem to understand him better than, than other people. And, and yet he, he never seems to, he's married and he carries on little affairs and they always sort of end badly. And, He's kind of dismissive of the women, but he sees a young woman and, you know, thinks, oh, here we are. We're away together. And they begin an affair, which ends up in the story being transformative. He, he doesn't realize that she's going to be, become very important to him and, and it, it changes his life. So there's a moment after they've first been together um, and they go out for a walk and we see his, it's, it, Chekhov doesn't say he's falling in love with this woman. That comes much later, but here we see the sort of seeds of it being, being sown. At Orianda, they sat on a seat not far from the church, looked down at the sea, and were silent. Yalta was hardly visible through the morning mist. White clouds stood motionless on the mountaintops. The leaves did not stir on the trees. Grasshoppers chirruped, and the monotonous hollow sound of the sea rising up from below spoke of the peace of the eternal sleep awaiting us. So it must have sounded when there was, so it must have sounded when there was no Yalta, no Orianda here. So it sounds now and it will sound as indifferently and monotonously when we are all no more. And in this constancy, in this complete indifference to the life and death of each of us, there lies hid, perhaps, a pledge of our eternal salvation of the unceasing movement of life upon earth, of unceasing progress toward perfection. Sitting beside a young woman who in the dawn seemed so lovely, soothed and spellbound in these magical surroundings, the sea, mountains, clouds, the open sky, Gurov thought how in reality everything is beautiful in this world when one reflects Everything except what we think or do ourselves 
when we forget our human dignity and the higher aims of our existence. Wow. Do you want to say anything else about that passage? Well, he, you know, says it all. He's, he, he's got us, you know, appreciating life and, and thinking of death and, and saying how, you know, this, the sea will, will still be there when we're all gone. But I like how he adds, instead of the beautiful rhythmic sea, it's like the monotonous, hollow sound of the sea. You know, he's not going to make that pretty, but he will say how beautiful the clouds are. And, you know, he'll, he, he mixes it up, Chekhov. He will describe this feeling of hope that this sort of cynical man has and and returns at the end of this sort of moment of saying, you know, everything is beautiful in the world except what we think or do when we forget our human dignity. So it's it's a reminder of the sort of fallible aspect or the frail aspect of of a person um, of humanity and how that keeps us from seeing this sort of magic around us all the time. It's just so beautiful. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft. Yes. Um, and this is sort of something that we had, we were talking about earlier, which is the, the, the sort of growing um, obsession with, with time. Um, and it's a reflexive passage in the language of cats and dogs, the last story in the book. So we're not going to be following a, you know, what's happening in the story. It's, as I said, something I find myself doing more in my later stories, but it's about writing stories. You think you are done with an experience once it is over, and it is set into some version in a story, and there it will sit. But if you return to the experience many years later, because you are, say, urged by a movement in the culture to re-examine the treatment of women, an examination which seems to come every 50 years or so before it fades away again, then you might discover new details waiting for you unnoticed. What you do not know when you're young is that you may, as your life goes on, return to things that happened, and that the more you visit a thing, the more time you spend experiencing it in reflection, in memory, so that an event which took, say, an hour in your life may afterward be recalled and visited by you 50 times over, each time you remember it. Moments of happiness, such as the period one fell in love, may be remembered again and again, weeks worth if it was a really compelling thing to think about. And moments when one was shocked might similarly be preserved, not voluntarily, and exist as a freeze frame. Do you want to share anything else about that? Well, it's it's referring to um, a moment that this this story is circulating around when a um, a professor makes a, a very creepy kind of pass at the protagonist um, at the very end of her 
you know, last day of college and he's a writing teacher that she really liked. And, and so she's going back 40 years later and sort of looking at, at that thing that happened that she hasn't, she didn't forget about it. It just sat there, uh, sort of frozen. And this is sort of describing why she returns to it because she's movement in the culture to re-examine the treatment of women is kind of a reference to Me Too movement, but I didn't want to be too sort of specific about naming it that way. And so it makes her look back at, oh yeah, this was a, this was a moment. And, and besides describing everything going on in her life at the time, she also reflects on the different aspects of not only that experience, but of of men's sort of dismissal or um, you know even kind of a lighter version of of the, the sort of irritating behavior that women can get from men and sort of going deep into um, you know much more severe kind of abuse. It's looking at this this um, less less obvious. Um, undermining of of a person. Where do you write? I write at my kitchen table, <laughs> and I seem to do that both in New York and and here. Um, in New York, uh, my daughter is now um, almost nineteen, so when we lived in a small apartment in New York, so there wasn't you know she she had the desk in the the living room to to work at and I would work at the kitchen table and then here in Maine I just have a small house and my kitchen table is the has the nicest windows and the biggest space what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing when i'm in the city i go to the movies i see friends for for meals um here in Maine where I am now I take walks I painting my house I'm digging rocks out of out of the ground to try to make gardens <laughs> though this I don't know if this is getting away from writing it sort of is I've been listening to books a lot and it's something that I didn't do a year ago. Um, I sort of felt like, well, that's kind of cheating, or I like to see the words, and I really want to, you know, see how the sentences look on the page. And But I've switched, and now I'm thinking, I'm going back to the earliest way that, that people listen to stories, which were with, you know, the rhapsodes in Greece, when you, you listened to someone tell you a tale. And so I'm listening to a lot of, not so much fiction, but um, biographies, and I'm listening to a biography of Elvis, who I've become completely obsessed with during the pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm listening to a, a beautiful book by Wade Davis um, called Into the Silence, which is about the, the first, as they call it, assault on Everest, but it's mixed in very much with the, the um, World War I and the men who fought there and a lot of them were on that first climb up Everest when Mallory was lost. Um, 
and they're, you know, they, they take me into other lands and into other characters, which is just such a pleasure. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, I used to show it to my, um, my editor, um, but she's gotten very busy. She's got promoted and she's, <laughs> she'd be horrified if she heard me say this. Um, and so I don't want to bother her as much. Um, and at, at this stage of things, I'm kind of, if I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> um, you know, I, I should by now. So I don't, I don't really get feedback on, until I'm done. And, and so the feedback is, is more minor. It's like, oh, maybe switch this or, you know, it's, it's more kind of editorial comments. Um, I've also find that showing someone something in process is, it's just not usually helpful because you haven't gotten, you haven't done what you're, you've set out to do yet. So for someone to comment on it sort of mid sketch is, is not helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? I was thinking of that because you sent the question before. I'm never surprised at rejection. <laughs> so, you know, you, you take the hit of it, but usually it, it kind of, I let it make sense somehow. It's like, oh, well, that's right. Like, why would they want that anyway, you know? Um, so I, I think I, and maybe this is a defensive way to deal with rejection, but you just, you accept it as being true and right and okay, well, try to do better. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? Well, I was thinking my the first word that my daughter ever said was light, except she said "ite," which I thought was nice. I mean, I think she said "mama dada" first, but and it's such a lovely word. But I was thinking of again, you sent the questions. So I was thinking of it last night, and I suddenly thought instead of the word, I was thinking of laughter, like as I mean, light is a lovely thing too, but laughter, it's. It's a nice sounding word, and it's also such a, it really is a wonderful thing. I mean, I know that sounds sort of cheesy to say, but my God, without laughter, it would be, it would be so grim. You know, the laughter of children, the laughter, you know, that relieves sort of tension, the deep laughter of just something so funny, you know, it's, it's a, a, a glorious, it describes a glorious thing. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome, Mitzi. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Susan Minot, author of Why I Don't Write and Other Stories. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Rachel Cantor, author of Good on Paper, about a single mother co-parenting her daughter with her best friend who discovers that her job as a translator may be impossible. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. 
You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jonathan Lethem and Charles Baxter. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.